Wow, it is such an honor to be here, and I hope that today I can share some more profound wisdom, like you see that I share with my home church about burritos and things like that, but hopefully there'll be a, a little bit more for you today, but um, it is such an honor to be here, and I just want to give a shout out to the Sparkle team. This has been amazing. I've been taking pictures. We're going to have a women's conference at our, our church in February, and you'll probably see some of the same ideas there, so we're totally ripping it, um, but also just want to say how much I, I just love Rob and Becca. They have become dear friends and, and it's amazing to see what impact that they're having around the world. But as I sat with her at lunch the other day, what struck me was her heart for all of you and for her heart for to, crea to create a place like this where we could turn off the noise from the outside world and just come together and, and hear from God that you would be able to walk out of here confident in your God call, knowing that you're loved and your daughters of the King. And I just love you, Becca, and I love your heart for these girls. Let's give it up for Becca. I love this house. I love River Valley Church. It reminds me a lot of home. It's just a much colder version um, of my home. And so I just want to show you a picture of where I live. This is a picture of West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, and this is the beach that I grew up on. You might recognize it from many episodes in Shark Week. Um, but I survived my childhood here. And this is what a typical day looks like. But this is what the last few days have looked like as Hurricane Matthew has been ravaging through the town, but actually that's a little bit more than what it's actually looked like. I pulled this up before I, I came of the hurricane force winds, but everyone's safe at home and they, um, they hunkered down, but thank goodness God just kept that hurricane off the coast and everyone's safe, but it is really just an honor to be here. And, and like I said, I grew up in West Palm. I live actually 10 minutes um, from where I grew up. I've lived there my entire life. And um, a little bit about myself, I did not grow up um, in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in church, but um, in the, when I was in seventh grade, my family was living in the fallout of a really messy divorce and two remarriages that happened in a very short period of time. And my brothers and sisters and myself found ourselves living in the fallout of all the hurt and pain and dysfunction that comes from all of that. And during that season, my sister went to a public high school and there was a guy there who asked her to come to youth group. And he was really cute. So she said, yeah, I'll come with you. So she went to youth group and I watched her life get radically turned around and changed. And so when she asked me to come with her, I was like, hey, if there's more really cute guys there, I'll go with you. And so I showed up and what I found there, what I was not prepared for, even though I didn't understand the language, I didn't understand all that was going on, I found people in that place that made living for God so beautiful and so attractive that it took away my taste for everything that was out there. See, I was on this path following my brothers and sisters down a path of rebellion. I was in places, they were four and five years older than me. So I was going places that no seventh grader should ever go. And I was doing things that no seventh grader should ever be doing. But God sovereignly picked me up from that place. I was headed in this direction, picked me up. And in, in the time when my own family was going through a crisis, he placed me in a spiritual family. He placed me, he gave me spiritual moms and dads. He gave me youth pastors that saw a very hidden seed of a potential. And I'm telling you, it was a very, very buried seed. If they could find anything in this rebellious teenager's heart. And they began to dig for the gold. And they gave me opportunities to, to sing and to serve. And, and I, I had a youth leader named Carrie. And she was only 22 years old, but she would drive 30 minutes one way 
to make sure that I got to youth group and church every time the doors were open. And so I found the spiritual family. I found my, my calling in church. I found my husband in church, right? In the seventh grade, we were seventh grade sweethearts, and we met there, and we dated all the way throughout high school and college. We were, um, we were more off than on, even though my husband would say we were more on than off. So depending on who has the mic, and I've got the mic, so I can tell you, we were definitely more off than on. And my favorite season was in one of our extended off seasons. Um, I had just finished my freshman year of college, stayed committed to him. It was time for him to go off to college. And that was the time to release each other for God's will, right? So girls, do not fall for that one. So we, but we did release each other, but we found each other. So I've got a picture of my husband, Todd. We've been serving together, building church for 30 years. This is my son, Jefferson. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. But, um, but I just love what we get to do in building church in South Florida. And I love that we get to be front and center to see God do miraculous works in people's lives, people like you. And that's why it's such an honor for me to be at, a, at, at an event like this because I get to see what God's doing and what he wants to do in the hearts and lives of his people. So, so as we step into this time together, I just want to pray for us. So before I open the word, let's pray together. God, your word says that our time is in your hands. And, and God, I just want to put these, these moments, this series of sacred moments that we've entered into, into your hands because you do your greatest work with what we place in your hands. I pray, God, that you would help each woman here to step into the God moment that you have for her. I pray that you would help her to step into the moment of healing. I pray that you, God, that you would help them to step into the moment of clarity and, and just even the, just a moment of refreshment. God, you have so much for every girl in this room. And I pray, God, that you would bless these moments together. In your precious name, amen. Turn to your sister next to you and tell her, don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. <laughs> so a few years back, a couple of the girls at church came to me with this really great idea. And their idea was that they wanted to raise awareness and raise money for our Hope House, which as Becca mentioned is our, our safe house for minor girls that are being rescued out of human trafficking. And so they had this brilliant idea that together that we could run the Disney Princess Half Marathon. And I thought, that's amazing, we can do that. And so, um, so we just, I signed up, I was committed, great weekend with friends for a great cause, but there was only one small problem, not only had I never run 13.1 miles, I had never actually run to the end of my driveway, right? <laughs> but I was committed, I'm a woman of my words, so, so I jumped in and, and I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. So in the weeks leading up to the marathon, um, I would be walking around the neighborhood with my, with my husband, he'd be like, hey, do you wanna just maybe run a little bit? And I'm like, no, I've got this, you know, I got plenty of time. Um, a couple of weeks later, he'd be like, hey, do you wanna download that app, you know, like couch to the 13.1 or something? I'm like, don't judge me, I'm fine, it's all good. So, um, so the weeks went by, time flew by, and it came to the weekend of the event. So the day before, um, I decided it's time to prepare, right? So I went out and I bought a really cute outfit and some really fun tennis shoes, which by the way, I would not advise that if you're running a marathon to buy the tennis shoes the day before. And, um, and I was prepared for the race. So we, we lined up, that we drove up two hours to Orlando and lined up for that amazing race. And I'm telling you, the energy was electric. I mean, at Disney World, they do it right, right? The fireworks are going off. Everybody's in their Disney princess outfits. And I mean, for a few minutes, I actually thought that I was gonna be able to do this. And so I'm in the very back, you know, the very back corral when they line you up for all the slow runners. And, um, and so the the race kicks off and we start 
running, and I'm thinking, you know, the Disney magic is setting in, and I'm running at a good pace, and I realize, you know, that there's this bus coming up behind us, and I got a strategy, because what this, this bus would pick up the people that, um, that fell behind pace at every mile marker. And so if you fell behind pace, they'd have to pick you up, because eventually they'd have to open the parks, right? And so what I figured was, if I could just stay ahead of this bus, I'm going to be good. So I'd run a little bit, and then walk a little bit, run a little bit, stayed, stayed ahead of the bus, and, and that strategy worked for me until about mile marker number eight, when the big orange bus of shame picked me and all the other stragglers up and carried us across the finish line. But what was so funny is when I got on the bus, it's not really funny, it's kind of sad. When I got on the bus, there were actually girls crying, like arguing with the bus driver. They could not believe that Disney World was robbing them of their dream come true and not allowing them to finish. I'm going, girl, if you couldn't make it to the end of your driveway yesterday, all the pixie dust in Disney World is not going to help you cross that finish line, right? So... So that's my, that's my only running story that I have for you. Um, but you might be able to relate to me. Like the only race that I'm actually pretty good at is a three-legged race, right? Or maybe you're like some of the girls at home when I pull up behind their cars in the parking lot and I see those bumper stickers. You know what I'm talking about? 13.1, 26.2. Anybody have those bumper stickers? Yeah, I see you, whatever, you know. So, um, yeah, so whether you're like me or like her, we can all agree that running any race for any distance is a challenge. And whether we consider ourselves runners or not, we're all running a race every day of our lives. And it's going to take a lot more than pixie dust to get us to cross that finish line with passion and with perseverance, the way that God intended us to run that race. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we get a picture of this race where it says that, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up, and let us run with perseverance the race that God has set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. See, God has a specific race marked out for each of you. He's put specific gifts and abilities, and he has filled you with limitless potential. And it is his desire that you would fulfill that potential. And this race that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the race that we, we look ahead to as we're standing at the starting line in our life of faith in Jesus. And this race isn't always visible, fully visible from the starting line, right? It's not going to be a 100-yard dash that can be easily run and won. It's not going to be a, a well-planned, well-marked-out marathon. It's going to be more like a rugged, tough mutter cross-country event. There's going to be lots of obstacles, lots of storms, lots of uphill climbs and challenges on the way. But this is what I know, that no matter where you are today in your race, God wants to meet you where you are so that he can take you to the place that he has for you. You may be tripping over some hurdles right now, getting, getting tripped up by the same mistakes, the same sins, the same relationships over and over again. You might be worn out from the marathon because you've been praying for breakthrough for so long and you just haven't seen it. Or you might, be, you might have hit the wall you might have thought that your life was just going to look so different. You thought, for sure, by now I'd be married. For sure, by now I'd have children. But no matter where you are, Jesus is the author of your race, and he sees what's ahead in your race. And he wants to lead you down a path of purpose. So if I had a, a, a title for this message today, it would be Awkward Races, Interrupted Paces, 
and unexpected places. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not taking notes, write that down. <laughs> Awkward races, interrupted paces, and unexpected places. And as I share today, I just, I just want you to, to find yourself in one of these places. And when you find yourself there, just say, God, this is where I'm at. And ask him to speak to your heart because I really believe that he wants to meet you at the place you are so that he can take you to the place that he has for you. You know, God's word is full of runners, right? Full of runners and races. In the Gospels, we see the overjoyed father that sprints towards his son who's been living in rebellion for too long. And then we see in, in the Old Testament, Elijah, who ran, outran a chariot for 17 miles. And we see um, one of my favorites in the Gospels when the woman was running from the empty tomb so that she could be the first to tell the world about the resurrected Savior. And every race in the Word, and every one of our races, is the same. It has a starting line, a path to be forged, and a big finish. And so what I want to share with you is that some races are run at high speeds, but some races are walked out on long, dusty roads. And that's where we find the story of Ruth. And see, Ruth is one of the most beautiful love stories of all time, but it all started with a difficult and sometimes really awkward journey. So we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. See, Elimelech decides to do what is right in his own eyes, and because of a, a famine, a temporary famine and a passing problem, he leaves God's place, and he leaves God's people, and he moves them to enemy territory, which is the town of Moab. See, Bethlehem was the place of bread, the place where God would provide. But because of a temporary problem, he leaves God's place, leaves God's family, and brings them into Moab. And that's where they lived for 10 years, long enough for their sons to marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. I bet you didn't know Oprah was in the Bible. She's not. Orpah. Orpah and, um, Orpah and Ruth. And they, um, long enough for them to, to live, to get married. And then after some time, Naomi's husband and her two sons passed, leaving Naomi and the girls penniless, right? And so Naomi, who's a foreigner in this land, decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem. So imagine the scene. She and her two daughters-in-law start on the long journey back to Bethlehem. And they're on the road, and she realizes halfway down the road that, that she has nothing to offer these girls. She has no future to offer them. They have much more of a chance of a future back in Moab. And so she begs them to leave her. And so Orpah, after, after a season of begging, turns around, goes back to Moab. But, but Ruth, she clings to Naomi. I mean, like that awkward hug, awkward cling. And I felt, you know, if I was her friend, I'd be saying, girl, get a hint. She cannot even take care of herself. How in the world is she going to take care of you? But Ruth clings to her. And on this dusty road marked with pain, Ruth makes a declaration. This is what she says. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if even death separates you. See, this declaration was the starting line of her awkward to amazing race. It was awkward because she would be a, a, a foreign poor, widowed girl living in a new land. But it was amazing because God would have people and provision waiting for her at every mile marker on her journey. See, this, at the starting line, this was like the, 
the starting line of the pathway to her purpose. And she was making some commitments. And these commitments that she was making were like deposits into her future destiny. Hear this. The commitments that she was making at the starting line were like deposits that she was making into her future destiny. She was committing to Naomi. Naomi, we are family. Where you go, I'm going. I know that you don't have anything to offer me, but we're not just friends, we're family. And I'm in this for the long haul. We're going to go the distance together. And then she makes the commitment to, to God, and she turns her back on everything that was behind her in the land of Moab, which meant that she was going to be disowned from her own natural family. And then she made a commitment, not only to Naomi and to God, but to God's people. Ruth was a called individual, and we're gonna see a little bit more about her individual call later, but her call and her purpose was deeply connected to God's people. See, we have a God that thinks relationally. He thinks, he, he, he created us for relationships, and it's his, even though he is, has a race that's marked out for us, It is his plan that our race be marked by the people that he's put in our lives. He has a race that's marked out for us, but it's his his will and his plan that our lives be marked by the people he's put in our lives. You're never going to reach your full potential outside of God and the people that he's placed in your life to run alongside you. You'll never be the you that God created you to be. You know, one of the things that I love about um, being in the same church, being planted there for 30 years now, is that, um, that I get to watch some of the girls grow up in the house. And I was having coffee with one of our girls a few um, months back, and her name is Lindsay. And I love Lindsay. I watched her grow up through student ministries, and she had so much potential, and she was running hard after God. But then she started entering into her college years and young adults, and she didn't really run away or walk away from God. She just kind of drifted away, right? She didn't stay anchored in the house and stay anchored in healthy, life-giving relationships. And, and I was sitting across from her this day because um, she had just broken up with her boyfriend for, that she had been with for six years. And she knew at the beginning that he wasn't probably God's, um, God's plan for her, God's best for her. But she kept thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe I can pray him in. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I can, I, maybe he will become that person that, um, that I want him to be and that God wants him to be. And so she began making small compromises. And after six years of unfaithfulness, um, she sat there with a broken heart because she felt like her, the last six years of her life were robbed. And that's what the enemy will do. You know, the enemy comes to rob and kill and destroy. But Jesus came to give life and give it to the full. And part of that is full, that he wants to give us a life full of life-giving relationships. And so as she stood there today, on this day, she was, you know, she was sharing, she goes, I, I just want to start over. I want a fresh start. And, and how can I do this? Do you have any advice for me in this, um, and as I start this new journey, back to God, running my race? And I shared with her what I'm going to share with you. And I, I said, Lindsay, you need to be in relationships, in deep, intimate community where you have girls running alongside you, community that is full of encouragement and full of accountability, right? Sociologists have done studies that say that we become the average of our five closest friends. We become the average of our five closest friends. That's why I hang around with people like Becca and Rob, right? My average just went way up. So we become the average of our five closest friends. And I'm telling you, I told her, I said, so I'm not, you can have friends at the gym, You can have friends at school. You can have friends at work. But what I'm talking about is you need to have five or six sisters that are running hard after God, running in the same direction that you are. They're going to encourage you and cheer you on. That are going to hold you accountable for the commitments that you want to keep. 
See, accountability can, can be uncomfortable, but accountability is just giving someone else permission to help you to keep the commitments that you make, right? And we're all better when someone else is watching. You know, let's face it, this kind of committed, intimate relationships can be awkward. It's awkward to give permission to someone to ask you the hard questions. It's even more awkward when you're the one having to ask the hard questions, right? But this is the kind of relationship that we have to have if we're going to be able to make it on this race that God's called us to. It's uncomfortable to put yourself out there. You know, what if someone really gets to know the real me? Will they even like me? Or maybe you've been hurt by relationships, maybe even relationships in the church. And you're like, I don't know if I want to take that chance again. Raise your hand if you've ever had a bad haircut. Yeah. Okay. So we've all had bad haircuts. It's a bummer, right? But just because we have a bad haircut does not mean we're going to give up on haircuts. It's too important. Hair is too important. Raise your hand if you have bad restaurant experience. Yeah. Okay, my family would starve if I gave up on restaurants. So just because we've had a bad haircut or a bad restaurant experience doesn't mean that we're going to give up. And it's the same thing just because you've had a bad relational experience, bad experience, maybe even girls in church, don't give up on the relationships that God has for you. It's too important. There's too much at hand. God, see, Ruth's destiny was tied to Naomi and to Naomi's people. And in the same way, your destiny is tied to these close sisters that you're running the race with. Some of you need to step into the awkward place, the mess that comes with relationships. You need sisters that are going to run alongside, that are going to cheer you on, and they're going to coach you up. Because this is what I know. Sometimes, many times, Awkward starting lines can lead you into an amazing adventure. The most awkward starting lines can lead you and launch you into amazing adventures. And that's what happens to Ruth, and that's what's going to happen to you. So we pick up the story in Ruth. So um, they continue their journey. They travel seven days across the desert, across the Jordan River, up 2,000 feet up a mountain. They finally make it back to Bethlehem. And this is what it says. When they arrive in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She probably looks a lot different after 10 years of hardship. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means joy. She told them, call me Mara, bitter means bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Wow. Naomi must have been a real blast to hang out with, right? <laughs> yeah, but Ruth was committed. She's going to hang in there. Sometimes family, it's hard to be with them, but you're, you're committed, right? And so what I want to say to Naomi is like, really, you're blaming God for this? It was Elimelech that actually brought your family into Moab. And, and it doesn't say anything about you putting up a fight there. So what I want to say to her is, you know, why are you blaming God for your problems? I'm sure God gets sick of, of us blaming him for his problems. What I want to say is, come on, Ruth, get a grip. But let's not be too hard on Naomi, right? Let's not be too hard on Naomi. Because her life had been interrupted by the storms of, of decisions that somebody else made, made for her. Her life had been interrupted by, by the consequences and bad choices that they had made. And you may find yourself in this place today. You were off to a good start, running your race, and something happened that you weren't expecting. It stops you in your tracks, and it interrupts your pace. This is the place of an interrupted pace. And, you know, all of us have been there. Hebrews 12, 1 says to strip off the sin that so easily trips us up. 
See, we've, had, we've all had missteps and sins that, that trip us up and leave us on the ground. And then we, we beat ourselves down. The habits and mistakes that, 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 that get us time and time again. The relationships that we knew that weren't God's best, but we keep going back to. We've all had missteps. And we've all had trip-ups. That's when the, when the mistakes and sins of other people, you know, the, the decision for somebody else to lash out or to walk out leaves us on the ground. And we don't know how we're going to make it through our race. And stripping off and throwing off sin can seem impossible. And it's almost impossible to do it by ourselves. You know, um, I am an Olympic nerd. And I love watching running, even though I don't run. And I'm not seeing the countdown clock, so I'm starting to get nervous. So, um, so the... Um, the, in the Olympics, in the 1992 Olympics, there was a runner named Derek Redmond. And I love this, this story because Derek was favored to win the 400-meter race. And, and just a few meters into the race, Derek stops, and he has a searing pain in his leg. He tore his hamstring. But he was determined to finish his race. And it was absolutely agonizing to watch him as he limped across the, uh, on this race. And, and suddenly, out from the crowd, there was a man that burst through the crowd and started to run alongside him. And this was his dad. And he said to his son, he said, you know, son, you don't have to do this. But his dad said, but, but then Derek said, yes, I do. And his son, then we're going to finish this race together. And with millions watching and cheering, Derek and his dad crossed that finish line together. And, you know, some of you are like Derek. You know, you've had some trip-ups and some mess-ups, and you don't know how you're going to go on. And you need someone to come alongside you to tell you that you're going to make it. But some of you are like the dad. You have seen God is faithful. You have lived through a, a few storms. And it's time for you to come alongside your sisters and speak God's voice over them. And tell them that the truest thing about them is what God says about them. And to tell them that their missteps don't make them. And that, that God cares more about your next steps than your missteps. You know you know that God's calling you to step up. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes where it says that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. I love this verse because it is such a picture of the power that we have to overcome our missteps, to overcome our sins, to step into and step out of the mess that drags us down when we find ourselves in those places. But it's, it's running the race together. And God wants to, to use each other to be able to help step out of that interrupted pace. But it's not only sin that, that trips us up. The, um, Hebrews goes on and talks about the, the weights. It says to strip off every weight that slows us down. And, and weights make it hard for us to, to take that next step, right? These are the things that hold us back and, and try, to take, to, try to take us out of the race. You know, um, in my own race has been interrupted by circumstances at times that have been beyond my control. And these are the times that, um, that, that I feel like my race has taken a huge detour. And honestly, I cannot stand detours. I'm a, I have a high sense of urgency, which is a really nice way of saying I'm really, really impatient, right? And so when I'm at a detour, I hate detours because they, they keep me from getting where I need to be. And they take me down roads that I don't even want to travel down. 
And that's what detours do in our lives. Detours are those unexpected places, those unexpected places that we find ourselves in, the sicknesses that we didn't see coming, the, the, the job that we lost and we, didn't, we don't know how we're going to make it. And sometimes we find ourselves in these unexpected places. Fear can set in and weigh us down and try to keep us from moving forward in our race. You know, I showed you a picture of Jefferson a few minutes ago, and, and, um, and Jefferson is our only child. Um, I wanted to have six children when we first got married, and after six years of, of struggling through infertility and, and three miscarriages, God brought us our one child, um, Jefferson, who is the light of our life, and he has been our miracle child from day one. And so I thought when, um, when we got through that little detour that our family testimony had been written, and, um, and God has used that testimony to help people in their path to pray for girls and, and pray for couples that are on the same journey. But I had no idea what, um, what detours were waiting ahead. And when Jefferson was three, he wasn't talking and he wasn't developing the way that other kids his age were. And so um, we began a series of tests and, and through that time, Jefferson was diagnosed with autism. And at that moment, I just thought, wow, God, this is our miracle child. What do you mean, you know? But we began to pray for healing and pray for a miracle. And, you know, sometimes God can do miracle in seconds. And then sometimes he brings you into a series of miracles. He brings you through a series of miracles. And that's what we saw in Jefferson's life. You know, we prayed that, God, he's not even speaking. Can you please help him to put together three words for a sentence. And literally, I'm not kidding, the next day, he spoke his very first sentence. And we asked God to provide for the very expensive therapies that he needed, and God just provided, I mean, slipped hundreds of dollar bills into our pockets during worship services. It was amazing. And so we began to see God do miracles, and, and he took us on this journey where we prayed like it was all up to God, but then we worked like it was all up, up to us. And we saw Jefferson progress, and day by day, he was like our walking little miracle. And he, even though um, it, did, it wasn't a complete healing, we just saw God moving day after day, and he was, we were always moving forward, always moving forward. And that was until um, about seven years ago, when not only did he stop moving forward, but he started experiencing severe regression. And my son, who had grown to you know, be just a vibrant, life-giving, funny you know, kid, all of a sudden stopped talking, couldn't get out of bed. I had to walk him through every time he brushed his teeth, every time he took a shower, and I was scared to death. Fear really set in. And so we had everybody praying, and I just cried out. I was like, God, surely you didn't bring us this far to leave us here. Surely you didn't start this miracle to stop it now. And so during that time, you know, I wasn't even able to go to church. I had to be with him 24-7. This was a period that lasted about three weeks. And, and so one day, you know, I decided we're, we're going to get out. We're going to go do something. So he could walk, um, but he just had to walk with someone. And so we went to the beach, and we were taking a walk. And um, we were walking along. And, and I wouldn't normally recommend that you get your theology from T-shirts on the beach in South Florida. <laughs> that would not be what a wise woman would do. But that day, God had a word for me. God had a word for me on a t-shirt as I was walking on the beach. And there was a man that walked alongside us and his shirt said, listen to what you know, not to what you fear. Listen to what you know, not to what you fear. And I realized that I had been listening to fear. 
And there were certain things that I knew about Jefferson. I knew that God had a plan to prosper him and not to harm him, to give him a great hope in the future. I knew that the very God who had been faithful in the past to answer those prayers was with me in our present and was going to be waiting for Jefferson in the future that I was so fearful of. I knew that he who began a good work in Jefferson was going to be faithful to complete that work. And so I began to listen to what I knew and not to what I feared. And so that night I took him to student ministries and for the first time back to church and we're sitting in the back and, and I said, God, I know that, um, that I'm not going to fear for Jefferson anymore, but so God talked about me for a second, right? Um, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I can be the mom that Jefferson wants me to be, that I need to be, that you've called me to be and how to be the mom of this house. We were getting ready to step into senior leadership at the church and I didn't know how I was going to do this and this. And right, I could not get that prayer off my lips and three 13-year-old boys came and grabbed Jefferson. They said, Jefferson, come down with us. And so they brought him down and they went down to a little worship mob and he just stood there, but they were all worshiping around him. And God spoke into my ear and he said, Julie, I've got this. I've got this. You can trust me. You don't have a mom life and a church life and a wife life. You have one life and you can trust me with it. And I have good things for Jefferson. And you know this family, my family, it's actually your family too. And I'm going to put people on Jefferson's path that are going to be instruments to his healing. And I'm going to use them in ways that you could have never imagined. And we have seen that to be true. We have seen that to be true. We've seen Jefferson, just to give you a little update, um, he just finished his freshman year at a state college with a 4.0 grade average. Yeah. And, and he's leading worship on platform at our church. And it's still a struggle. There's still challenges. But God has been faithful. And I know that some of you are in those detours right now. You're in that unexpected place. I want to give you a word. Listen to what you know, not to what you fear. And don't let fear weigh you down and keep you from taking the next step that God has for you in your amazing race. Okay, I have got to hurry because I am so far behind. I'm so sorry. So God had an unexpected, these detours that he brings us on always makes sense in the rearview mirror. It's true in our lives and it's true in Ruth's life. The, the story continues that, um, that Ruth tells, tells Naomi that she's going to go out in the fields and, and, um, and glean in the fields. And she says, go ahead, my daughter. So she went. And as it turned out, as it turned out, it just so happened. See, God doesn't do coincidences. God had Boaz waiting, Boaz waiting for Ruth in the field. God was directing Ruth in the pathway of her purpose every step of the way because God's power and his provision flow in the pathway of his purpose. And once Ruth got, chose God's way, he provided again and again. So the story picks up. Ruth um, catches the eye of Boaz and, and, and he's like, hey guys, save some of the grain for the hot girl over there. And then she brings home all this grain and Ruth's like, and, and Naomi's like, hey girl, where'd you get all that grain? That's enough to feed us for a week. And she's like, hey, there's this guy named Boaz. I think he's checking me out. And she's like, I know that Boaz and he could be the answer to my problem. So Naomi concocts this plan for, for Ruth to be able to capture the heart of Boaz. And it's a very, very awkward plan. I don't have time to go into it, but I'm telling you that it is better than any Final Rose episode of The Bachelorette. But you have to read it for yourself. So Boaz takes Ruth as his wife 
And it says that, um, and I'm going to read this really quick. So Boaz took Ruth, became his wife. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be the Lord who is who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you than seven sons has given him birth. And his name was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, who was the, the greatest king of Israel, and whose descendants came the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So God used, God used Ruth who was a homeless, widowed foreigner from a pagan worship family, pagan worshiping family to become the great, great grandma of Jesus. My God can redeem any situation. And I'm sure that Ruth standing at her starting line could have never seen this in her future race. And so she must've been asking herself, how did I get here? How did I get here? But it really wasn't a mystery. See Ruth, the place she was in her race could be traced back to the commitments that she made and then the steps that she took every day in the path of her purpose. And it's the same for you. God has so much waiting for you in the pathway of your purpose. But the place you end up in your race will be be determined by the commitments that you make and the steps that you take on the pathway of your purpose. So since we're talking about awkward things, I want you to stand up and I want you to grab the hand of the girl next to you And I just want you to know that God has amazing things waiting for you in the race ahead. He is, he is using some of you to, to, to raise the next world leaders. He's going to use some of you to, to fight social injustice. But the race ahead is going to be hard. And it's going to be difficult. And you're not going to make it without this. You're not going to make it without this. Your destiny and where God wants to take you is so tied to the people that he's put in your life. So don't run your race alone. So maybe God's speaking to you in the awkward place and you need to step up your commitment. You need to step into relationships that are gonna encourage you and hold you accountable to keep you on the path of purpose. Some of you need to step up and come alongside your sisters. Stop making excuses that you're not a leader and you don't know the word. Just be a friend and start reading the word. Stop making excuses. Some of you need to step out of the interrupted, the interrupted pace. There's been things that have been t- tying you back, holding you back for too long. You've got to step up out of it. But you might need help. So you've got to find someone today to help you be able to step out of that. And some of you need to trust God in your unexpected place. Trust him and don't let fear hold you back. So God, I just pray for my sisters here today. I pray, God, that you would just seal the commitments that that you want them to make in their hearts today. I pray, God, if there's, that those who need to step into place of relationship, I pray, God, this would be the day that they would find a sister, that they would tell her to run alongside, run alongside me. I need this. I need to be in committed and connected relationships. I pray, God, that, that you would release those from the weights and the sins that are holding them back. I pray, God, that you would help us to trust you in the unexpected place. God, we are believing that you want us to run this race with passion, with perseverance, and with purpose. But we know that you've not called us to run this race alone. So I pray for my sisters that they would not run alone, but that you would run with them every step of the way and they would run with those that you've placed in their lives for every mile marker on their journey. It's in your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.